This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. And we're here with Behind the Mic. I am Allie Henney, Vice President of The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. And I am so excited. Tonight is going to be really super awesome. We do have a guest on Behind the Mic. I'm hosting again, which is kind of odd and awkward. But the reason why I'm hosting is because I have a special treat for you all tonight. So usually the president of Witness BCC, Tyler Burns, usually he is the person who is doing the interviewing as opposed to being the interviewee. Well, tonight we're going to turn the tables and Tyler is going to be our interviewee. So let me bring him on. All right, Burns Clan, where you at? What up, what up? How we doing? I'm here with Tyler. Man, it feels like it's been forever since I've seen you, but it's only been since uh, 1030 this morning. <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> also got to plug the R2-D2 mug. All right. Get with it. Star Wars. May the force oh. be with you. You know what I'm saying? Hey. hey. So we have the uh, the tables turned a little bit. Usually you're the one that's interviewing me. Um, this is my first time actually interviewing you, I believe. So this Ooh. is... This is a... This, and my first question for you, because I, because you know, you know how I am. Like I got, I got to come with all the whatever. But the reason why I am interviewing you tonight is that two weeks ago, you, the second part of your story was shared on Pass the Mic, and you, um, in telling your story, you had said that in order to really know your story in depth, you had to understand it in the context of your dad's story. Mm. And so in the first episode, in the first part, it ended up being, I should say, kind of it's kind of weird that you might be asking yourself, okay, we had, you know, Jamar, we had Tyler, then we had two parts of Allie, and then we jumped in there with the Tyler part two. Yeah, yeah. Well, Tyler's interview with his dad, there was it was going to originally just all part of Tyler's episode. So there's some behind the mic stuff where he's really, really originally all going to be just kind of, you know, cut and part of Tyler's episode. Well, then what we realized was that it was going to be way too long for that to happen because there was an hour interview in itself on top of like the hour and a half that interview that Tyler had done with Jamar. So then it was like, okay, well, we can try to cut some of it in there, but come, cutting some of it in there, it didn't quite do the whole story justice. So then we were like, Okay, well, we'll do like a bonus episode the same week that Tyler's episode drops. So we'll cut it down a little bit and just do like a little bit of, of, of to use Jamar's favorite term and a moose boosh. Um, <laughs> okay, I got to have this uh, manifest the spirit of Jamar here for a moment. Um, but to have just to have like a little bonus episode or whatever. So then that snowballed into why don't we just do a whole full episode with Greg Burns? Because really, it's the Greg Burns story. We marketed it to y'all. It's like people like Greg Burns. We marketed it to y'all as Tyler Burns. But really, it's Greg Burns' story. So we have yeah. out of order asynchronous part two dynamic happening here. And I thought that it was really interesting. 
I really liked hearing your dad talk. I can tell where you get your wisdom. Um, mm. There were some times that I that I even got confused as to who was talking because your dad's voice, <laughs> your dad's voice is definitely different. Um, you, I can hear his Mississippi accent. I know your voice very well, but there were times because y'all sound similar enough that there were times that I would get lost and be like, "Wait a minute, is this? Oh, this is this is this is this is Mr. Burns talking. This isn't this isn't Tyler. There's some there's some." Right. But I had to remind myself of who was telling the story. So I want to get to that um, a little bit more. I mean, obviously, that's why we're here to talk. But, you know, I was listening to the episode again before I got on here. And I had some questions that relate back to the first episode, but tied to the second episode. Because there was a dynamic that I noticed between your dad and okay. So... In your episode, you were very much like, you know, my, my church kept me grounded. My parents, you know, they, they, they kept me really grounded in, in understanding race and understanding racism and how and you went kind of through your, your young black conservative Republican stage, right. your young restless reform stage. And it was really your parents that seemed to be a grounding factor in kind of helping you to speak. They were kind of like, eh, they quite it. So th- that was your perspective on that. But I thought it was very interesting how your dad was like, yeah, you know, son, you were the one that that really was opening my eyes to injustice, and and I didn't see that, and mm, and there were things yeah. I weren't seeing. So I'm like, man, you know, well, that that's that's really interesting because I because I because I have a feeling because I'm, I'm not sure I'm not sure what was going on there, but I so the question that I, that, that raised for me was the young Republican. Ty- <laughs> The young conservative Tyler versus the Tyler that's educating your dad was was born in like 1956, 1950-57, lived through the civil rights movement in the South. How do you get to that from from the 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 um, Tyler who is educating about your auntie, your aunties and stuff about how Obama is bad? Being the Tyler is opening your dad, who lived through the civil rights movement in the South, through through that. How do you get to? How how did you get there? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think you know to clarify part of that too. The first iteration of the conversation where I say my parents kept me grounded and my um, my parents also kind of explained the reality of racism to me. It was specifically about the existence of racism in any sort of form, right? So I was so extreme in the sense of, you know, getting this constant stream of um, education that racism doesn't even exist in any form that's necessary for us to talk about and explore. And so they were saying, no, we can point to specific instances where we have experienced racism. Now, the shift came and specifically, I think the educational part that my father is talking about is the integration of faith and justice, the integration of faith and the, and the Black identity. It's really the whole point of the witness, right? So it's it's this Christ-centeredness and Black-centeredness. And so he hadn't seen that model yet up close in proximity to someone who was also taking, you know, spiritual authority and preaching regular sermons. He had only seen that caricatured from afar, but he hadn't seen that model up close in proximity. So I think that was a big part of it for him was seeing the integration of, oh, my 
matter, but they matter to God. And God has something to say about them. And beyond that, there's also a theology that can be constructed as a result of it. So, but yeah, so I think that was a big part of it. I think, you know, also when you talk about the transition and when you talk about the growth from that point to that point, I think life taught me a lot of racial experiences that I didn't recount because I didn't want to um, re-traumatize myself. Mm -hmm. Um, But there were a lot that I just didn't talk about and that I just, you know, that would sincerely re-traumatize me. And so I just stayed away from those types of of discussions. And then I think um, even beyond that, I think for me, I always felt like as soon as I, as soon as you get a glimpse behind the curtain, that people have been lying to you about your identity and about what Christ says about it, you can't help but pull the curtain back. Mm. And so it's this, it's this little thing that people don't understand. It's a dynamic that people don't understand. So as soon as I started talking about race and justice in a local context, people thought it was a fad. So like, oh, it's just a fad. He's gonna come around and realize that he's a pawn for the liberal scheme or whatever. And they didn't understand that when you get that glimpse, it's like it's fire shut up in your bones because now everything that you've been through makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so people are like, oh, you slipped off and you went to this extreme left position. And I'm like, regardless of whatever you think about that, because I really don't care. The point is now my identity makes sense. And mm-hmm. now all the things I've experienced make sense in light of the theology and the sociology mixing <laughs> and merging together. And so there was this synthesis that I think a lot of people do not um, do not take do not take enough time to understand when it comes to our stories. And that synthesis was firing my bones. I couldn't let it go. And that's when it just started spilling out to everybody. Everybody had to hear all my friends, Mm -hmm. (laughs) social media, my family. Everybody's going to hear about it because now this is making sense. And it could also perhaps make part of your life make sense as well which is really leads into the connection with the witness and, and things of that nature. So, yeah, I think that was a big part of it. Once I saw a glimpse, I couldn't help but pull the whole curtain back. You know, we got to rip the whole thing up. That's that's awesome. I was sitting there, I was listening, I was like, okay. So, so it was Tyler's daddy trying not to blow his spot. He was like, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, sir, you taught me. I was like, hmm. Well, let, let's go behind the mic, man. Let's go behind the mic. Let's go behind the mic because I think that's important. Um. This conversation is a miracle. This conversation is a miracle because when initially I started talking about race and justice, remember, I was a staff member under him. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm a staff member. And then I'm also a part of a, at that time, a relatively large staff that was not all in agreement with the style with which all in agreement with maybe the principal message. Mm-hmm. But not the style with which I was doing it, which was, you know, at that time, extremely confrontational. It still probably is a little bit, but just not the same way. Um, kind of confrontational and direct. And so we had some knockdown drag out. So when he says that, oh, yeah, you know, you, it's, it's not so much that I educated him. It's, it's that I poked holes in his argument. So the thing that my auntie did with me, I did with him. Mm. <laughs> so it's just kind of like, I like, no, but what about this? And, how does this connect to the specifics of what Jesus is talking about when it comes to the least of these? And why do we not read, you know, the prophets with any, any sort of seriousness? Like, I'm just, I'm just connecting all these dots and I'm saying, well, how is it that, you know, the gospel that we preach and has been taught to us has nothing to say about healthcare and economics and the plight of the poor and, you know, Mm -hmm. 
so essentially I'm doing like, you know, deconstructed liberation theology in front of him. Mm, mm-hmm. And he's like, oh yeah, not just, oh, the, the highfalutin arguments of the academy, mm-hmm. but I'm bringing it down to the level of, no, let's just look at it from mm-hmm. a, a moral standpoint here. Let's look at it from an ethical standpoint and let's see what God has to say about this. How are you going to argue with <laughs> justice in this regard and the integration of how we talk about justice if you get down on the ground and actually see it? And so now he he connects to those points and values them a little bit better. But it wasn't necessarily because I, I convinced them. It was more like I just presented an alternate way. And y'all, this is what this is why the witness exists. Nine times out of 10, what I've seen is that when black Christians find out there's another way, they leave the way that they're currently on. The mm. status quo is no longer right. Yes, yes. Because what they've been taught is, and this is part of the conditioning, it's the only way. Mm. The way we tell you to live, the way we tell you to carry yourself, the way we tell you to talk about the world, the way we tell you to refer to yourself is the only way. Mm. And if they if they convince you that's the only way, then you'll stick on it and everything else you'll point out. But if one person reveals to you an alternate way, if one person shows you and you're not too entrenched in that previous way, that status quo, it's over. <laughs> we'll that a little bit more here in a moment, but to the point of talking about doing some of the liberal, liberal theology, the deconstructionist type of thing with that, with your dad, um, that leads me to the question of what was it like interviewing your dad? Because you definitely, I wasn't, I wasn't sure. I know I, I, cause it's different. Doing an interview is different interviewing somebody versus being the person who is being interviewed versus being in a, in a position where like you're, you're in a co- kind of a co-host type of position like you are with Jamar, but it's a completely different um, aspect whenever the other person on the end of the interview, whenever there's, whenever there's um, stakes attached to it in a, in a certain mm-hmm. So with that being your, with that being your dad, like that's, that's your dad and you're, and you're asking him, um, some pretty pointed questions. There were some points where I was like, "Oh, he doesn't. Oh, he doesn't <laughs> there." So I wasn't really sure. Whatever you had said that you had, that you w- were interviewing your dad, you really wanted to have this this part out here with your dad. I wasn't really sure because I mean, you you can ask some pointed questions to other people, but I really felt like some of your questions, even to your dad, were a lot more pointed than even how you get in interviews. I was like. Ooh. What what is this? Is is this is this Oprah? Is this Barbara Walters? So what was that like to, mm. to that moment? Um, how was the, what was the preparation like? Did you know in the moment that you were gonna that you were gonna ask your dad some of these some of these just pointed questions that you asked him? Great question. And no, I actually it was supposed to be fifteen minutes. And so the original yeah, so the original interview was really supposed to ask really three questions. And so I was supposed to ask about kind of the general nature of his upbringing was going to ask about his experiences in white spaces. And there was going to ask about some of his decisions as it relates to how he chose to race us. But once I got started, I was like, Oh no, let me, cause I didn't know how he was going to be on the mic because mm-hmm. he's a pro, but I just didn't know how he was going to be on the mic. So I'm just like, man, maybe he's not going to be comfortable and be honest. So I'll just get whatever I can. And so when he started talking, I said, Oh no, this needs to just keep going. You know, mm-hmm. so even even us going, um, we went back to his old campus, you know, and even us going back to his old campus, college campus, you know, at one point that was like impromptu. You know what I'm saying? There were little there were little things that were just like, oh, yeah, well, tell me about this. 
okay, I didn't know that you were the only black member. <laughs> Tell me about this, you know? And so I think what, what you saw on display between my father is something that I pray and yearn for in all of our intergenerational relationships in the black community. And that's um, a profound sense of trust. Mm -hmm. And what we don't talk enough about is that the trust to have very honest conversations and dialogue has been significantly depleted um, in our community because of unhealed trauma between us and our parents. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not saying that we're past all of that, but what I am saying, you know, in all cases, what I am saying is we've had these conversations behind the scenes and because we've had these conversations behind the scenes and my father has given the posture that he is safe to ask pointed questions to. That's why I was able to ask pointed questions in front of y'all, because I've had to ask pointed questions from my, you know, of my father for years. And he's welcomed that, you know, I hasn't always been the best reaction. Right. But mm -hmm. I talk about it in the um, in my joy and justice talk when I said, yeah, you know, I was having a conversation with my dad and I told him he should probably get therapy. Mm. You know, and he said, you know, he paused. Everybody was like, "Oh, he went after you." I bet. I was like, "No." He just paused and said, "You know what, son? I received that." Mm. That's and, yeah. Th so that model is. I give credit to him mm -hmm. because he has modeled what it looks like to support and affirm an adult son, mm -hmm. even even if you don't understand everything, and not to come in and say, "This is how you do it. Do it these three ways." But to be honest with you, we've had to endure great trials and suffering and pain and hardship in order to get to the place where we can actually have these conversations in front of people. And people think that they're, oh, these are great conversations. And y'all are being so honest. And we're like, oh, we kind of went through hell to get here. Mm. And so you have to pass through that in order to have the trust enough to be honest in front of people. Yeah. Um, but it was it was tough. Like, I, you know, I just want to ask, man, did you think white was better? Like, I need to know this. You know, <laughs> we've never really had this conversation. Like, can you talk about this? Like, man, in this particular context, I know I've danced around this before. But, man, did you think white was better? Like, were you trying to turn me into something else? Like, what's the deal here? I mean, you know, we could have made it anywhere. Right. Like, and it's that sort of gentle confrontation that I hope shows that I honor my father, but I also, none of us is above accountability and none of us is above explanation. And the second that we become above explanation, we lose the opportunity to grow in trust and understanding between one another. Mm -hmm. And he's done that with me and I've had to do that with him. And so you guys are seeing a, a practice model over the course of many years. Yeah, you know, I was clutching my program. <laughs> Whenever you would ask your dad if he thought if he thought that white was better, and you know to that intergenerational point, um, something that I am encountering and really learning, I think that it's that it is rare the type of communication, particularly. I mean, you know, we we tend to stereotype generations, and there definitely are stereotypes um, that fit that fit certain generations, and so and a dynamic that I have observed with. Gen Xers fit this sort of, they're sort of maybe a hybrid model of, of millennials. They, they've tried to, they've tried to take down, because a lot of Gen Xers were raised by the silent generation or, and, or baby boomers. And so they, the generation Gen X was probably one of the first to, in, in our modern time to kind of really realize that some of the old ways weren't really serving everyone. 
Um, they still sometimes, depending on who raised them and whatever, will sometimes kind of vacillate between their their ethics or whatever. Um, where I think that that millennials and Generation Z, we are um, a little bit more open, a little bit more honest, maybe too honest, maybe too confrontational. Mm-hmm to like i'm just going to put it all out there um but something that i that i've um, had the opportunity to observe with ba- with baby boomers um and and silent generation people um even even amongst themselves sometimes where it can where where communication i don't want to say like they're difficult to communicate with or anything like that i'm not trying to say anything like that but where um there is often that there's a there's a value to be heard and to be understood on your own terms, but not necessarily to understand the other person. Mm. I've I've witnessed dynamics where, first of all, where, where younger people and older people talk past one another, but it's not even, it's not even an intergenerational thing. I witnessed it intra generational. So, so within older within within the the baby boomer within the silent generation where sometimes they will talk past one another um because because and it's not in their communication style i'm not saying that it's wrong but i think that it's that, that sometimes whenever we are trying to be heard and understood on our own terms and you and you factor in trauma you factor in a world where you had to do that where you had to where you had to get tough with people and assert what you thought that mm. there wasn't always there wasn't always time or space to have dialogue so you know a lot of the parenting styles even were, were kind of very and very authoritative authoritarian if not if not authoritative authoritarian just kind of like you have to you have to comply right now because oftentimes they were in situations that that were that could end up being life and death where we're not in those situations anymore so we are, are not as readily i should say like you know those exist those situations don't exist but right. where we, we weren't raised in the type of world that that our parents who my, my, my parents are baby boomers we were raised in a completely different world i was raised in a, in a different world didn't mean that it was any less any less danger any less dangerous didn't mean that it was any less racist or anything like that but there's more there's more room i think for our generations um for younger generations to be able to dialogue with one another to be able to to be able to make ourselves understood but then also work to understand other people where older generations they they don't they don't have those they don't have those values those 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 ways didn't serve them and so to th- those ways back then didn't serve them um and so then to have where you where we are kind of forging a new way as a younger generation and then to have people from to have our parents to have your parents grandparents um, older, younger aunties, um, older siblings and stuff where we're, where we're having the intergenerational communication. I think, um, that's really a, a very, a very healthy model. And it definitely sounds like, you know, that was something that, um, that definitely sounds like something that was, that was hard earned and, and, and hard won. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. 
is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Um, early, so there's something you said in the podcast. There was something that you alluded to earlier that I that I want to get to, and you talked about um, in the podcast. You talked about a social salvation that was preached to to black believers, and so I have a feeling. Uh, whenever I took that statement, what I took that statement to mean was sort of like this idea of like, oh, well, homeschooling or Christian school is the is the best. I think that was a particular context that y'all were speaking. But this idea of there's like a certain way that you carry yourself, certain things that you're involved in. You don't listen. You don't listen to the secular rappers. You got to listen to the Christian rappers. You don't listen to to the to the secular alternative band. You listen to the to the to the sound alike Christian band, right, right. Um, like that that type of thing. So I I wanted you. I was wondering if you could expand on this idea of social salvation because I. There's another thing that I'll say before you answer this question is that I have observed, I never had the language of social salvation, but something that I have observed among black believers in, in white Christian spaces often, I will notice that they, that, that some will adopt, if it's a culture wars type of congregation or a culture wars type of denomination, they will adopt a culture wars outlook on life. And so it'll be like, I, you know, Black people are might be against like you know a vaccine or something like that, but for completely different reasons. And right. so you'll see. So I think the vaccine is a good example of that. So you'll see black people who are kind of like you know skeptical and leery of the vaccine, but it has to do with medical racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As some of these black Christians in white Christian settings, they adopt like white anti-vaccination like outlooks and like mm-hmm. oh, it's about, and so then occasionally those things will be tailored to be like, oh, well, also, it's not, they don't talk about it in terms of medical racism, but I've heard of things of like, well, you know, they're trying to give black boys autism and like all this and real like super ableist type of type of language. So they'll talk, so they'll talk about racism because they do the same thing with abortion. They'll talk about, they'll, they'll bring up race in terms of a, let's bind a black person's conscience to this. So they know enough about racial politics to do that. But then it's always, the solution is always, is always whiteness or always a white center, a white centered thing. So yeah. I just, I wanted to frame that because I think that maybe if you've seen it, you haven't, if you don't know the language, you've at least heard it. So, so to you, what is a, what is a, a social salvation? Whew, that is a phenomenal question. And I'm, I actually use that phrase and that term out of context in the interview. It's one of the things that if, you know, again, behind the mic, if you're an interviewer and you kind of expounding on questions, you know, at the, you know, on your feet in front of people, you know, sometimes you can rearrange questions in your head because you think it's going to flow better, but you miss a point that you might have wanted to make um, in that earlier part of the dialogue. And so that's what happened with me. So I incorporated it in a later part of the dialogue, but I think your conversation and your explanation of, you know, this culture wars mentality is so true. And I think it is a part of that. For me, when I said a social salvation, what I was referring to is the white Christian narrative that is so often preached to black people without being explicit. 
It's an implicit narrative that all of the struggle of your past, which white Christians typically uh, subtly identify as a result of black cultural failings, not white cultural failings, all the struggle of your past can be redeemed by you following Jesus in the way we tell you. And so it is a salvation that has the implications of not just saying, oh, your soul can be saved, but it is a different type of gospel which says, now you can not just redeem your soul, you can redeem your surroundings, but redeem yourself in the midst of it so that you can put your surroundings in the rear view. And you can take your surroundings and then tell your people, that's, that's why we turn into Pharisees to our own people. Mm-hmm. Right? Because then, then what happens? Oh, y'all need to do it this way. Y'all, why don't y'all do this? Why don't y'all teach me the gospel? Why don't y'all do this? Oh, why don't we read the Bible like this? Why aren't the categories clear? Uh, oh, why y'all preach with all that, that hooping and that hollering? Why y'all sweating so much? Why? Do, so what we do is we go and we try to reform our surroundings because the, the subtle implication is there's something wrong, not just with our souls, but with our surroundings and where we came from. Mm-hmm. And so then they tell us that, oh, well, you know, the real problem is fatherlessness, black on black crime. This So that's how there's this connection between, oh, so the same people that are discipling me in these white Christian evangelical settings are the same people who are telling me, you know, what's really wrong with the black community. You, you know, what's really wrong in your area. You, you know, it's cool. I get what y'all are saying. But see, here's the thing that I'm saying. I'm saying, where are all the fathers at? Right. So they critique your cultural surroundings while at the same time discipling you. And so they're not just offering you discipleship in the soul context. They're they're discipling you in the way of living like them and in the way of living with your past transcending your environment. Right. And so that's what I feel like it was for him. And that's what I feel like it is for so many people who they get in these spaces and no, nobody's going to overtly say, well, I shouldn't say that. Very few people are going to overtly say some of these things, right? I thought of your immediately flashed in my head, uh, go back to Africa. Does that flash in my head? I was like, wait, let me not say that. <laughs> but most people, they're not going to say, oh man, you know what y'all, the problem is y'all. They just going to say everything but that. Mm-hmm. Watch for the people who try to subtly critique your culture without having any buy-in or proximity to it mm. or without ever taking a learning posture from it. And that's the problem. This is the social salvation. So now what you can tell me is it's my, it's a problem with my culture, with my people, with my upbringing, with my church. Just check all the trolls. All the trolls say the same thing. They just say the quiet part out loud. Mm. It's a problem with your culture. It's a problem with your culture. It's a problem with your people. It's a problem with your view of the Bible. It's a problem with your church. It's a problem with your discipleship because y'all don't really care about discipleship. All y'all care about is having a good time in church. And so they deny our experience and then say, here's, here's the more civilized way, savage. Well, here's the more civilized way for you to carry yourself. Don't dance and shout, sit in quiet and reflect. Because that's what that's the real Christian way. That's the real way that we're supposed to do. It. And so that's the social salvation. And that's a big part. of. It. And yes, there are some implications of the culture war. But I think it's even more fundamental than that. 
it is tying your salvation into a baptism in white evangelical culture and saying, this is the way you live. That's why they, that's why they take you on. <laughs> that's why when you get discipled in these spaces, they take you on all the plate. They take you with them to the places and the things that they like to do. How many stories have I heard of black men going hunting and, <laughs> and going to these, these famous ranches and, <laughs> you know, starting to get into different wear, different style of clothes? Why? They're discipling you in the way that they work, in the way that, <laughs> that they live. Mm. So what I'm saying is you got to resist the social salvation if you're going to be in these spaces. It's a discipleship into whiteness. It's a discipleship into whiteness. So my, one of my, I went to seminary with a guy, um, that some of y'all may or may not know, um, but his name is Sean Watkins. Um, he works with yeah. B, the bridge. He was one That's of my, my classmates and um, he wrote a blog post many, many years ago. Um, I feel like the title of it was something like I ironed my shirt today or something like along those lines. And so he's, so he's a, a, from Texas. He's a Texas boy, you know, grew up in that time where you iron your stuff. You got, you got the creases, you got the, the whatever, like all, like all that stuff. And so he, so he talks about like how, um, whenever he got into some of these white Christian spaces, People would like make fun of him for ironing his clothes. I mean, you everything was like always Me too. super iron, really super pressed. And so he was like, and so you they just be wearing like these shirts that's that's wrinkled and stuff. And so he was just like, Oh, okay, I guess that this is so so to fit in, he just stopped he just stopped ironing his clothes. Yeah. Part of his part of his like emergence from from that was to start ironing his clothes again. And I, you know, you talk up, you talk about the hunting, you talk about, you talk about all this different, all these different things. I can't like, Oh, I'm like, Oh, triggered. Like, hold on, hold on a second. Not, not because, because, because I, I've, I've observed some of these things before. I'm trying, I'm trying to think of like, like, okay, was there, was there anything, was there anything that I did? There wasn't anything that I did specifically, but I remember um, being in spaces where it's like, okay, you know, we're going to, we're going to go to the scrapbook party. And so it's like, okay, like scrapbooking, like in the early 2000s, okay, scrapbooking's a thing. So we're going to go to the scrapbooking party. And I talked about, you know, some of my, um, the discipleship and some of the spaces that I was in was like, okay, well, the girls, we're going to go over here and talk and then the men can go over here and do this. And I always kind of you know, really flouted that because I thought that, that was bullcrap. So I was just like, I'm going to go play Halo. Like, right, like, <laughs> right. right. Like, like y'all, like y'all gonna go shoot guns. Okay. I'm from, I'm from the country. Like I can go and shoot guns. I'm like, I'm gonna go shoot guns with y'all. And so, so for me, it was like more of a subversion type tactic, but like, I could totally see that. I mean, I like, I, oh my goodness. And what kills me too is all that I'll say about that too. And then we can stop talking about them is they will disciple you into whiteness, but then cherry pick the parts of your culture that they want to try to use to relate to you. So you, so, so, you know, you, maybe you should listen to this. You should worship in this style. You should listen to this and this, but then they'll share, they'll, they'll come. I, I see it all the time. It doesn't happen. I, it, it, at least for me as a black woman, I mean, it does, it does happen in, in a different way. I was going to say, this doesn't really happen against a black woman. Yes, it does. So you'll have black, it's the reverse of the Obama code, hand state code switch. So you have, you know, you'll have a uh, white man. They'll come to each other like, Hey bro, how you doing at church? How's it going? Oh, that's just such a, a fantastic spackle actor. Lee title. 
lingo and what the white jargon is. Which I'll say, oh, yeah, whatever. Then they'll, then they'll come up to the black person and they, they can put a, little bit, put a little bit of bass in their voice. And they're, oh, hey, what's up? What's up, bro? What's up? What's up, homie? What's up, Holmes? And, 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 we'll, and we'll throw on the black scent. Like, what I'll get is I'll get the, oh, hey, girl, with the, with the black scent. They'll, they'll, they'll automatically start talking in a black scent, automatically start whatever. And, like, I look at people and be like, I, I am from West Central Missouri. We do not talk like that there. Like, like we do, like we do, we we got slang, we got like whatever. We don't, we don't, we don't like that. And so like, but anyway, anyway, enough about them. But I put that. Well, call, oh, go go on, go on. Let, let me let me just say this. Let me just say this. You have to understand this. People have to understand this in the context of the the white evangelical church com- complex. Again, remember we talked about this the last time we were together on on, on behind the mic which is, it is this complex, which is about numbers and the expansion of empire, which is the whole purpose of it. The whole purpose is the expansion of empire. Now, here's the thing. They, they relate to you in that way, just enough to hook you so that they feel like, oh, they know I'm relatable. They know I'm cool. They know I'm one of them. So then, that they can draw you in and make you a part of the machine. Well, is it about learning your culture? Is it about seeking to understand? Or is it about doing the easiest possible thing, the the lowest hanging fruit, the shortest possible route to making sure that you know in your mind, oh, they safe without actually paying the dues to get safe. That's how it, this is is why they say they love us so quickly. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, I love you, man. We hung out twice. Look. How do, how do you love me? And we hung out twice. You don't know anything about my pain. You don't know anything about my trauma. You don't know anything about the things I've really been through. I, I'm telling you the Cliff Notes version of my life. I'm explaining general thoughts. You might have helped me in the midst of a crisis. And now it's like, oh, love you, bro. And it's like, what, what does love mean for you? Because that love sounds like it's transactional. The love sounds like it's attached to the fact that you want me to be close to you. And here's here's something else. This is another thing you have to understand. We need to do a whole series on these because I, I don't, I, again, I don't want to censor them, but I think it's important for Black people to understand the tactics. You have to also understand that for many white Christians, they know, they know something's wrong. And here's how they convince themselves that they are not a part of it get in as close proximity as possible to a black friend. And their proximity to one black friend will give them the ammunition to be able to say in other conversations where you are not around. Oh yeah, I was talking to my black friend. You know, we've been wrestling with this stuff. You know, we've been reading through these things together. You know, we've been going through this book and we've been, and what's the point? The point is not for you. You are there for them. Mm. And you are there to to verify that they are not all the things that you talk about. Well, so they they don't do the work internally to confront this. They use you as the shortest possible route to get to their absolution. Mm. And then they say, oh, well, you know, and then when it when it goes left, because they don't really understand, they haven't done the work. It's why some people can sit down with you. It's why it's why people can sit down with you and have these conversations. And then when when you tell them, oh, you replicating the same thing, they're shocked. 
Because for them, they thought they, they, they exercised the cheat code, the black friend cheat code. Well, they thought they exercised the black discipleship cheat code. Oh, I thought, see, if you disciple a black person, I thought if you introduce Jesus to a black person, then you don't have to deal with some of these other things because if you, well, I, this don't make any sense. So they're huffing and puffing because they're like, I did all that for nothing? And that's how they turn on you quick. You ain't grateful. You know, I thought we were friends. I thought, this, and it's like, well, hold up. How you turn so quickly? It's because their expectation of what you were to them was not for you. It was for them. It was for you verifying them and getting them closer to absolution. So again, this is what, be so, very care, be very careful in these friendships, y'all. So what you're saying is that this is a relational form of slavery, essentially. Yeah. And, and I think it is, it is ownership. And it's also this people truly believe. And yes, yes. Um, yeah, she said use them as shield. Yes, they use us as shield. That's something else. I, there's a, a whole episode on it. Mm. And it is, it is the way in which white evangelicals have told other white evangelicals and Christians, this is discipleship. Well, this is discipleship. You know what discipleship is? You come in, you, you, you preach the gospel to these people who are, who are obviously foolish and they need to be civilized. Then, then you bring them into your culture and you start critiquing all the things subtly that they've done. And then when they bring up questions, your theology can't expand. Their theology needs to shrink to fit your box. And, and then you have to make them look like you and talk like you. And then you can use them as a testimony. Well, and then you can prove to everybody that the model works and you can replicate it. And well, let me, what we did. Let me get super Pentecostal with this too, because P Pentecostal and charismatic, then they will have you renouncing stuff. They will, they will have you tell you that you need, that you got demons and you need deliverance. And so let's say, um, cause I, cause I, I've not witnessed this happen, but I, but I know that it happens because I, because I know what I know. Let's say you're part of a, a divine nine fraternity or sorority and you get into something and then all of a sudden you need to, you need deliverance because, oh, that's a secret society and that's a ceremony. So you got, so you got to renounce the vows that you, that you took there, or you've got to, re you've got to renounce, you've got to, you've got to, um, heal from the wound of your fatherlessness and accepting an Look. and accepting an orphan spirit or they talk about having a spirit of offense about racism and how ooh you need to repent from your spirit of offense because you know and, if and, I hear one more unoffended series <laughs> ooh, ooh I'm about to text you about this later Jesus Yes. So I'm sorry. I turned up. I'm sorry. There is a whole thing in the sphere of the church. If you see a ser if you see a sermon series called Unoffendable or something along that line, just assume that it came from some sort of prepackaged church deal, and that that pastor didn't have revelate. I mean, now that pastor might have written his or her own sermon, might have taken it. But it's but it's from a prefab deal. I'm just I'm just saying that's as much as I can right now and stay safe. Look, look. But I, uh, real briefly, real briefly, because we got a little bit of time, probably a little bit over time. Because we talk, because you talk about okay, well, you know, you're you're telling our audience here, be careful, be careful, be careful, because it's almost like okay, they'll they'll use you, but what about because we we talked about them, but what about, who are that black friend? Mm -hmm. 
what about the ones who are that person, that token, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that one that that went through the discipleship and the discipleship and and renounced their their spirit of offense or their fatherlessness or whatever it is, or they've been the one that that that, that they that they started critiquing the the culture and all this other type of stuff. Because I feel like those people almost make the, those spaces seem safe, right? Because like, oh hey, there's other sure. So this must be, so these people must be cool, but what would you what would you say to the to the ones? What would you say to the to the to the tokens? What would you say to people? Somebody who might be realizing, ooh, maybe I'm being maybe I'm being used. What would mm-hmm. you? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think I think it's important for people to understand that it's 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 even before this, it's not one thing, right? It's not the unoffendable series in isolation. It's a mixture of all these things together and all these things together build up into a, a, um, a reinforcing of, of power and a reinforcing of the connection of whiteness to what the gospel actually is. Um, and so it's not just one of these things in isolation because somebody's going to go back and be like, Oh no, it's, Oh, well, then this means that this, no, it's, it's multiple things. It's not just that one thing. It's just a symbol, right? Just a sign. I would say, I think to the people who are in these spaces and they are the one, you have to practice subversive at first and then overt resistance to being that person because it is not just about you. And it is not just about us when we are in the spaces. Cause it, it is, this is, this is the thing. Even sitting on a panel, I didn't realize this before as a black man sitting on a panel and there are no black women on the panel talking about racism. Okay. So right in that moment, I have co-signed excluding black women because I and myself have said it's okay for you to be on a panel and not raise a hay or a stink about the fact that we don't have any women and specifically no black women on this panel. What does justice look like if we are sitting here talking about racism and we're not talking about it from the perspective of black women? Well, there's something wrong with this. I can't be a part of it. So in the, in the second that you do not say anything or do anything, you have not just harmed yourself and if you really want to get spiritual, some people really still have friends in those spaces who don't get it, but for trying to bear with, you're dehumanizing them too, just so you know. Okay. Cause you're actually co-signing what should be a place where you call them to repent. But, well. but, but not just that, but I'll say we need to really think about our people and we need to really think about the implications for all black Christians who step into this space. Because while you might be able to navigate it due to your unique circumstances, your navigating it paves the way for multiple Black people behind you to encounter that trauma without the same history. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, when people talk about loving neighbor, what they typically do not talk about is the complex communal element of how we love. I love my neighbor enough to raise hell whenever someone is killed in the streets. And even if it's, I interrupt your timeline, I love my neighbor enough 
not to let the people on my timeline who are black think that it's okay. And you know what? You don't need to say anything about this. It's all good. You know what? It doesn't really matter. You know what? Yeah, that's that's in Minneapolis. Who cares? Like, I get it. You know, it's sad, but come on, y'all. We got pressing problems here. Yeah. So I interrupt the timeline. Right. I interrupt the timeline. So so you don't you don't think that's okay. It's not okay. And I'm not gonna allow you to stay in the status quo and sit there without having one person in your timeline interrupted so much to the point to where you want to unfriend me. Go ahead. But I bothered and touched that nerve in the same way we have to look at our spaces as constantly evolving, to use the word, ever reforming spaces that need to be challenged, critiqued, and refined. If you yourself need to be challenged, critiqued, and refined by yourself, how much more do these systems and churches and organizations who have existed for years without any substantive Black voice? You need to participate in your own liberation. And you need to participate in our communal liberation. And if you do not participate in our communal liberation, then you have to ask yourself, who are you really serving and who are you really benefiting? And so that's the question I want people to ask is, what does subversive look like, right? Subversive might look like, hey, I'm, I'm having conversations behind the scenes with people in power. I may not be in power, but I'm having conversations behind the scenes with people in power to, to make sure that, hey, I'm thinking about these things. Hey, yo, we've gone, you know, we've gone, uh, you know, we've gone 48 weeks this year and ain't, no person of color has preached from this pulpit. Y'all know that, right? You, you know, we gone the whole year and we ain't really done any sermons on justice. How do, how do we, how do we reverse 400 years if you're not participating in that? You know, you know what? We, I'm going to let you know I'm thinking about it. And if you are a black man in power, on a, in a staff position, you got to put your body on the line. Hear me. I, I haven't been this explicit, but I'm going to tell y'all straight up, you're a black man in these spaces. You better put your body on the line. It is not about you. Sacrifice the idol of your white Christian bromance <laughs> and your and your 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 idealistic sense that you and your friends and you and your homies and you and your people have so much history and start thinking about your people. Lay your body on the line in these staff meetings and go toe to toe with the power structures. Oh, okay, <laughs> go toe to toe with these power structures because you care that much about your people. This is what loving your neighbor means. It is not just you handing out money in charity and philanthropy to people with distance while you socially distance from their lives. It's not just about you doing drive-by evangelism. That's not just loving your neighbor. You know what loving your neighbor is? I'm going to lay myself on the line and they might think about firing me after I have this conversation. But it's worth it because I'm not going to allow my people to constantly sit under trauma. Now, you can talk like this if you have proximity to Black people. If you have proximity to your people, you can talk like this. Mm. If you don't have proximity to your people, this is going to seem foreign to you. Mm. But if you've, if you've had the conversations I've had, if you've heard the cries I've, I've heard, if you've seen the tears that I've seen, if you've seen the families traumatized and in racial trauma counseling for years like I have, 
If you've seen the families that have said, I'm leaving the faith because these white Christians have treated me so poorly, ain't no way God can redeem any of us. Okay. If you haven't seen it, I understand you're offended by this. But if you've seen it, you get it. Mm. Lay your body on the line and don't allow them to treat you like this. You, they are dehumanizing you, y'all. Mm. They are dehumanizing you and calling it discipleship. Whoa, okay. All right. All right so <laughs> I'm chilling. I'm chilling now. I'm chilling. I'm chilling. I'm going to add to that. Like, uh, that, you know, I normally wouldn't do this, but I got to, but I got to say too, because the spirit is on me, that you, that speaking specifically to the black men face, and I'm going to speak to the black women here in a minute, but that black woman, or that group of black women that you have written off as being loud about, and, and they're t- and they're talking about these things, but they are too loud for you. That is who you need to be sitting under and listening to. That's who should be doing your discipleship, not these white men who are gonna who are gonna bro and homie and what's up you to death. To, to literal death, your black body gonna be laying in the street, and they, oh, that, that was my bro, that was what, what he no. wouldn't want y'all to be acting like this. He wouldn't want you. You need you need to talk to some of them black women and black and, and black women. I'm gonna say this to y'all too. I'm gonna say this to black women because black women are not above respectability politics at all whatsoever. And the same goes for you too. The people who you think in your in your context who are loud, who you I hate it whenever we characterize one another as loud. Come on. That that is in inflicting white cultural norms on black bodies because what does it what does it you what does it mean even to be loud? What we're what you're saying, whenever you say that somebody is loud, you're not really talking about the personal volume. You're saying that they are taking up too much space. And so because they're taking, so whenever people are loud about, about injustice or loud about their stance for justice, what you're saying, it's not, has nothing to do with what they're saying and the frequency of what they're saying, or even the volume as you're saying it, it makes you uncomfortable because it is taking up too much space. It's taking up too much room. And so those are the very people, the people who make us uncomfortable, the people who are too radical, the people who are too militant, those are often the people that we need to sit under and that we need to sit beside and listen to because oftentimes they have a hold of something that we don't have because we want to sit up next to old King Nebuchadnezzar. We want to, we want to sidle up and be like, Ooh, yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll, okay. Nebuchadnezzar, I'll eat your food. I'll sing your songs. I'll be in your culture, whatever, whatever you got Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego out here who are going to, who are going to tell the structure what it is, who did it, how about it and why come. And we look at one another and we sit and we rate one another. And something that I see in this, when we talk about respectability politics in these spaces, something that I see is that we will position ourselves in relation to the people that we think are the most, the the most loud or the most radical or the, or the most whatever. And sometimes we might even position ourselves in terms of the people who we might consider to be the most accommodating 
of whiteness. And there's and there's a tug that I've seen in some people in some of these spaces where it's like, well, you might know enough not to be the person that's just out here like renouncing their blackness or whatever. So you don't want to be you don't want to be that person who, who's completely sunk. But then you don't want to be to this extreme of this other person. And us, I say this. I've been that example of, I've not been, I've not been the person, well, I don't want to be as radical as them. I've been the example. I've been to par- party to conversations where people are talking about stuff and then they're like, oh, you know, I'm not as whatever as Allie. And it's like, first of all, I mean, you know, I'm going to be real. I know it's kind of dehumanizing. That's kind of whatever. Cause I'm just out here living my, I'm living out here living my black life and trying to do my black whatever. But my whole point with all of this is that liberation is collective and it's for all of us. Come and on. We will be out here. We will be out here hurting our own selves and undoing our own work because we because because we want to make sure that we stay in masses good graces rather than going and tearing down the, the systems and the structures. We we will sit and want to be like, well, you know, we, we want to sit and maintain the plantation. Rather than saying maybe this plantation shouldn't, maybe this plantation shouldn't exist. We want to go and we want to benefit from the systems and structures rather than saying that the structures don't exist. So that brings us back to because the discussion, we talk about black men in this discussion because black men, we talked about this the last time that we were on the behind the mic together. Unfortunately, black men seem to be the ones that get the that get in the spaces, that get in the places, that get the that that get the the speaking gigs, that get the jobs, that get the promotions, that get the whatever. And so you're the first ones in there, and I get it. Be the first one, being the only. That there's pressure yeah. that comes with that. But are you are you there to get more to eat from to eat from the table and to get more of to get fat off of that table, or are you there for the liberation of your of people and that's a whole those are two different things ali you preaching and let me piggyback and be your amen corner on one thing let me speak to these black men pastors listen i feel you i know in your heart you have a desire to advance to encourage people um, to grow but here's what you got to do and it's a hard word but it's a true word you have to crucify your celebrity Christian aspirations. Here's the ugly truth underneath it all. We think that if we take that job at that white church, it's getting us one step closer to being known in a circle that we've always wanted acceptance from. You got to kill it. You got to kill it. You can't let it to be the person who is seen, applauded, celebrated, lauded, put on the largest platform, mm. viral. You have to sacrifice your celebrity pastor aspirations. Kill it. Mm. Kill it now. Kill it now, immediately. And this is the problem. This is what they sell you on. They sell you on, ah, man, well, you know, you could be this and you could be that. You could just, that's why I hear all the time, man, you could go far. No, far to me, and you might have different definitions. I I don't want to go far. I want to stay home. And I want to serve my people. That's going far. And this is the thing. This is so, so people are like, ah, man, we y'all talking about this justice stuff. Okay, let's take it back to Biden. If Mm -hmm. anyone will follow after me, oh, let him deny himself, take up his cross, take up his cross, and follow me. 
And follow me. Whoever seeks to save their life mm. will lose it. Will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my mm-hmm. sake, they're going to save it. Mm. Let it go, y'all. Mm. And there's so much freedom on the other side of not being known and popular and famous. Mm-hmm. You, you you realize church famous is an oxymoron in and of itself, right? <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of a ghetto in and of itself, right? You know that. But anyway, this is the problem. Crucify those celebrity Christian aspirations and see how free, see how bold you become when you're not concerned with being the next fill in the blank. Mm. See how bold you get then. Mm. Watch. Watch your boldness. Watch the power of the Holy Spirit come upon you for real. And you're like, oh no, wow. I, I, I didn't know I had this up. Yeah, of course you didn't know you had this type of freedom because really deep down, it wasn't about the uplift of people. Deep down, you hadn't done the work of healing your own trauma and going to therapy and dealing with that. And that's why you, you love the platform so much because the platform is a place where you get the acceptance that you should get in private from Jesus. All right, that's enough. I'm chilling. I'm chilling. I'm just chilling. I'm chilling. I'm chilling. I love, I, but I'm speaking this in love because I've seen too many black men who have been like, ah, man, well, you know, I just, why are you taking this job? I don't get it. And I've been there, man. Why are you, why are you going to stay here? Why are you staying? I don't get it. Why are you chilling in this space? I don't get it. And it's like, what's beneath the surface that we're not addressing? What's the internal work that we need to do in our own hearts? And 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 again, it is not because I dislike or hate or want to self-hate black men. It is because I love, I mm-hmm. love my brother so much that I want us to experience the true freedom that God has called for us to, which may include a massive platform or none at all. And you're going to be okay either way. I'm dead serious. If my wife is like, look, it's over. We had a good run. I need to step away because I'm saying, oh, God has called me to do this. But my wife says, no, (laughs) come on, fam. What are we talking about here? What's wrong with us? Why do we, why do we crave it so much? It's an idol. It's a God to us. And that God's got to die and not come back if we truly going to be free. So Mm -hmm. I love y'all receive it. And I receive it for myself. But let that thing go. Mm. Let it go, y'all. And you'll be free. Watch how free you get. Watch. Mm. You'll start turning up. Watch. You, you won't start speaking like you out of, like, your, your voice of trumpet. Mm. Oh, man, I really want to tap into the old black pastors. They ain't care about white approval. That's well, so much power. Mm-hmm. You want to be Samuel DeWitt Proctor? You want to be Gardner Taylor? Mm-hmm. You, you want to be honest? Okay, cool. You want to be Bastard McKenzie? You, you want to be Prathia Hall? Go ahead. You want to be them? Stop caring about white, white, white approval. Mm-hmm. Stop caring about white cosigns. Watch how bold you get. Your power going to increase overnight. Mm-hmm. And this is why the witness exists, because we beg, we begging y'all to get free enough to experience how powerful you can truly be in your own calling. Whatever God has called you to, he did not call you to get approval from whiteness. I know that. Well. So be free, man. Be free. Be set free. Be set free. Oh, my goodness. 
that was a word that was a word from the holy ghost in fact that was we did, a word a, we did an organ on this <laughs> we did an organ on this joint this was a word from the father from the son and from the holy ghost as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall so. be forever and ever so. amen this was it oh my so. goodness but we we have been we are way over <laughs> our usual Ali, I love this. You're a phenomenal interviewer. Phenomenal. Oh, thank you. That's that's a, that is high praise coming from you because you you are one of my favorite interviewers ever. Well, we definitely need to talk about this more, but we're gonna leave it there for tonight. And we hope that you will be set free. We hope that these words will be like fire shut up in your bones, that they will set you free. You know what? We don't usually do this, but I just feel to end in prayer. So like, I'll pray, yes. Tyler. Yes. And then Tyler, you can, you can, you can pray us out. Um, mm. But Lord, we have received a word tonight from your servant. Mm. Your servant has come and he has spoken. He has been anointed. He has been anointed and appointed for this hour, for this, for this moment, for these seconds, Lord. We pray that this life, that this, that the moments in this life, that the people who are there, that there will be some people that would be set free. And we pray that as we distribute this live this week, Lord, that as it goes out to the different people who it needs to go out to, that they would feel an unction in their spirit, that those who are in places where their dignity, where they are being dehumanized, we pray, God, that they would have the opportunity to be set free, Lord. We pray for the black men in these spaces yes. who, are, who are struggling with that celebrity Christianity, who, who are wanting to, to go viral, who are wanting to have all these things that haven't found themselves crucified with Christ. And we pray that they would be crucified with Christ so that they may live, Lord. We ask God that you would be, that you would be with them, that you would give them a holy boldness, Lord, that they would crave to be your, your trumpet, that they would crave to have your anointing yes, and that God. your anointing would be better than, than all of the finest silver, all the finest gold, all the the finest things that the fat of the land that they can experience in some of these places lord lord i pray for every black woman who feels silenced who feels marginalized who feels unseen and unheard god i ask that you would be with them i ask that you would speak with them that you would speak to them that you would speak through them and that you would give them a holy boldness to speak up where you have them at lord i pray for every person in every in every church lord where they feel like that they can't operate in the fullness of their identity and the fullness of who they are as um as uh, the fullness of who they are as children of god lord i pray that you would be with them i pray that you would embolden them and empower them to take the steps they need to either leave a space or to reform a space if they're called to reform that space lord i pray that you would be with them lord i ask all these things in your precious name <sighs> so now god of george floyd God mm -hmm. of Dante Wright. Yes. God of Breonna Taylor. Yes. Set us free. Yes, Lord. May no chains remain. Mm. May no deception fester in our hearts and our souls. Yes, Lord. May no lies take root and produce rotten fruit. Yes, Lord. Set us free. Yes, Lord. Set us free. Set us free. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Amen.
This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bao's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bao's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.